John chapter 5, verses 1 through 23, verses 1 through 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Burkett notes, This chapter begins with a description of the famous pool of Bethesda, whose waters were medicinal, to cure the first comer thereunto, whatsoever disease he had. Some think this was effected in a natural way, and that the entrails of the sacrificed beasts being washed into the pool, a healing virtue was communicated for curing the palsy and such cold diseases, as persons that have lame and withered hands are at this day directed to put them into the belly of a beast newly opened. But others look upon the healing virtue of this pool to be supernatural and miraculous, because it cured all diseases, how great and desperate soever, and in a moment, or very quickly, and but one at a time, and that one the first that stepped in only, after an angel had descended and troubled the waters. All which show that the healing virtue came not from the goodness of the waters, but that it was a supernatural work. Some think that the miracle of this pool was granted to the Jews partly to strengthen them in their true worship of God, and to confirm them in their religious course of sacrificing against the scoffs of the Romans, who were now their lords such a virtue being given to that water wherein their sacrifices were wont to be washed. Learn thence that means of God's appointment, how improbable and unlikely soever, must not be despised, but awfully admired and thankfully used, although the way and manner of their working be not understood or comprehended by us. Verses 5-13 through 13. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years, when Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he'd been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It's the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is it which saith unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Burkett notes, it was very commendable that the rich men did not engross this pool and the benefit of it to themselves, but suffered poor people to come to it. In this college of cripples, a poor man, who had been lame thirty-eight years, was found, who wanted strength to himself, wanting money to hire others, and others wanting mercy to help him. Christ takes pity on him, and because he could not go to health, health is graciously brought to him, and that by the hand of the great physician, Christ Jesus. Observe here, one, that not only are men's bodies subject to innumerable infirmities and diseases, but it pleases God for wise ends to continue some of his servants laboring under bodily weakness for many years together, 
yea, all the days of their lives. Here is a poor man for eight and thirty years together under the discipline of God's rod by bodily weakness. Observe, too, that it is the duty of the afflicted to wait upon God in a diligent use of all their means, which God has appointed for their help and healing, as to trust to means is to neglect God, so to neglect the means is to tempt God. This poor man, no doubt, made use of the means before, yet waits at the pool now. Observe 3. Though Christ well knew the case of this afflicted person and wanted no information, yet he asks him if he were willing to be made whole, to make him sensible of his misery, to quicken his desires after healing, and to raise his expectation of help from him. Though Christ knows our wants, yet he takes no notice of them till we make them known to him by prayer. Observe 4. The time when Christ wrought this miracle of healing upon the impotent man. It was on the Sabbath day. As an evidence of the certainty of the cure, Christ bids him take up his bed and walk. Our Savior's miracles were real and beneficial. They were obvious to sense and would bear the examination of all persons. The miracles which the Church of Rome boasts of will not bear the examination of our senses. Their great miracle, transubstantiation, is so far from being obvious to sense that it contradicts the sense and reason of mankind and is the greatest affront to human nature that ever the world was acquainted with. And our Savior's working this and many other miracles on the Sabbath day was for the testification of the miracles to all persons that would take notice of them. Observe 5. How unjustly the Jews taxed the cripple that was healed with the breach of the Sabbath for taking up his bed and walking on the Sabbath day whereas the law only forbid carrying burdens on the Sabbath day for profit in way of trade. But this man's carrying his bed was a testimony of God's goodness and mercy towards him, and of his gratitude and thankfulness towards God. Hypocritical and superstitious persons oftentimes pretend much zeal for observing the letter of the law, little respecting the moral sense and signification of it. Besides, our Savior has a mind to let the Jews know that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that he had power over it, and could dispense with it as he thought good. Observe lastly, the great modesty and humility of our blessed Savior. How hateful all ostentation and vainglory was unto him. For having wrought this famous miracle before the people at a public time, the feast of the Passover, to shun all applause from the multitude, he conveys himself privately away from them. Jesus conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Our Savior's business was to do much good and make but little noise. He sought not his own glory. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Briquette Notes. These words are our Savior's seasonable advice and counsel to the poor impotent cripple, whom he had miraculously restored to health and soundness. Whence observe one, the person admonishing, Jesus, he that has been his physician before is his monitor and teacher now. Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more. Oh, how much it is the duty and how seldom the practice of those whom God makes instruments for recovering bodily health to put their patience in mind of their obligations to thankfulness and new obedience. Thus did our Savior hear. The recovered man's physician gave him instruction. His healer became his monitor. Sin no more. Observe, too, the person admonished, the recovered cripple. Thou art made whole. 
But what was he? Not a disciple or a believer, for he that was healest wist not who Jesus was. Verse 13. He knew not Christ, therefore believed not on him, and yet he was healed by him. Thence learn that there are many outward mercies and common blessings which Christ bestows upon those that have no spiritual knowledge of him or saving acquaintance with him. The man that was healed wist not who he was that healed him. Observe 3. The place where Christ meets this his recovered patient, not at the tavern, but in the temple, returning thanks to God for his recovered health. When God sends forth his word and healeth us, it is our duty to make our first visit to God's house and to pay our vows in the great congregation and sound forth the praises of our great and gracious deliverer. Observe 4. The circumstance of time when Christ found him in the temple, soon after his recovery. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. We must not be clamorous and importunate to receive mercies, and dumb, tongue-tied in returning thanks, but make haste and not delay the time to pay our acknowledgments to him that healeth us. Observe 5. The admonition itself. Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Where our Savior admonishes him for the greatness of the mercy, Behold, thou art made whole, and subjoins a cautionary direction, Sin no more. Where it is necessarily implied that sin is always the deserving and oft-times the procuring cause of a person's affliction and calamities, and that the best and surest way to prevent the return of judgment and calamities to a person is for a person to return no more to sin. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee where it is further implied that Almighty God has sore plagues and severer judgments in store for those sinners who go on obstinately in a course of sin and rebellion against God, notwithstanding all the signal rebukes of his avenging anger. From the whole, note that when God doth graciously heal a person or a people, it is a mercy to be much observed and thankfully acknowledged. Verses 15 and 16. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Burkett notes, After the man understood who his healer and benefactor was, he went and told the Jewish magistrates it was Christ that had healed him. This he did not with any evil design, no doubt, to inform against him and stir the Jews up to persecute him, but desirous to publish what Christ had done to his honor and to direct others to make use of him. Learn hence that it is the duty of all who have experienced the power and pity of Christ themselves to proclaim and publish it to others, to the intent that all that need him may experience help and healing from him. This seems to be the poor man's design, but behold the blindness, obstinacy, and malice of the Jews who persecuted Christ and sought to kill him for doing good, and healing a cripple that had been thirty-eight years so. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Yet observe the cloak and pretense they have for their malicious persecution of our Savior, namely the supposed violation of the Sabbath day. They sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Learn hence that great cruelty against Christ and his members has always been, and still is, marked and disguised with a fair pretense of zeal for God and for his commands. The Pharisee mortally hated our Savior, therefore they covered their malice and traduced him as a profaner of the Sabbath, and seek to take away his life.
Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Burkett notes, From this verse to the end of the chapter, we have our Savior's apology for the working of the foregoing cure on the impotent man on the Sabbath day. And the chief argument he insists upon is drawn from his unity and equality in nature and operation with his Father. The Father worketh, says he, so I work. Here he speaks of himself not as a servant or an instrument in the Father's hand, but as the fellow worker with the Father, both in the works of creation and in the works of providence and preservation also. Learn hence, one, that Almighty God has long ceased from the work of creation, yet not from the work of preservation. My Father worketh hitherto, not by creating new kinds of creatures, but by upholding and preserving what he had already created. Learn, too, that Christ, the Son of God, is joined with and undivided from the Father in working. As the Father created all things by him, not as a man and as an instrument in the Father's hand, for then he was not such, but as his fellow worker, being equal in nature and power with the Father, in like manner as the Father preserveth, sustaineth, governeth, and upholdeth all things, so doth Christ, the Father's action and his being the same. My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Verses 18 and 19. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doth, these also doth the Son likewise. Burkett notes, Observe here, the Jews, instead of being satisfied, were the more enraged, not only because he'd violated the Sabbath, as they pretended, by healing the cripple on the Sabbath day, but because Christ had asserted that God was his Father in a peculiar manner and made himself equal with God. Our Savior therefore goes on to assert his equality in conjunction with the Father in his operations and workings, which does at once justify his work on the Sabbath day and prove him to be truly and really God. Now our Holy Lord, to prove himself equal with God the Father, produces first many arguments to verse 31, and then alleges the testimony of many witnesses to the end of the chapter. Our Savior's first argument to prove himself equal with the Father in essence and nature is this, that the Father and he are equal in operation, in will and consent for working, that the Son doth all that the Father doeth, and that the Father doeth nothing without the Son. Verse 19, the Son can do nothing of himself, that is, as man, as the Messiah, and as mediator, he could do nothing of himself. His perfect obedience to and compliance with the will of his Father that sent him would not suffer him to do anything without him. But as God, he could do all things of himself. Learn hence that it is an undeniable proof that the Father and Son are one in nature, essence, and being, and that they are inseparable and undivided in operation and working. What things soever the Father doeth, these also doth the Son likewise. And the Son doeth nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. Therefore, Father and Son being equal in operation and working, are equal in nature and being, and consequently both essentially, truly, and really God. Therefore the Arians of old and the Socians at this day are wide when they produce this text, 
The Son can do nothing of Himself to prove that Christ is not equal with God the Father. They forget or neglect to distinguish between His divine nature, which could do all things, and His mediatorial office, which could not do but what the Father that sent Him had appointed Him to do. Verse 20 For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth Him all things that He doeth, and He will show Him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Burkett notes, the second argument which our Savior produces to prove his unity in nature and equality in operation with the Father is drawn from that special love which the Father beareth to the Son, which inclines him to communicate all things to him by a divine and ineffable communication. Learn hence, one, the Father loveth the Son, that is, with an essential, eternal, and ineffable love, as being the substantial image of himself and the splendor and brightness of his glory. Two, that the Father's love of Christ was communicative. The Father communicated his essence and nature, his wisdom and power for operation to the Son. The Father showeth the Son all things that he himself doeth, namely, by a divine, inconceivable, and unspeakable communication. Verse 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and quicken them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Burkett notes, a third argument proving Christ to be God and equal with the Father is here produced, namely, his raising of the dead. He's joined with the Father in that work, and equal with him. As the Father quickeneth whom he pleaseth, so doth the Son quickeneth whom he will. That is, not as the Father's instrument, but as a principal agent, by the same authority, with the like absolute freedom of will, which the Father uses, being a sovereign and independent being, as the Father is. As the Father raises the dead and quickeneth them, so the Son quickeneth whom he will. This is more than was ever said of any prophet or apostle, that he did such works at his will. Learn hence, one, that quickening or raising of the dead is an act of omnipotence and proper to God only. The Father raiseth the dead and quickeneth him. Two, that Christ's power to raise the dead as well as the Father's is a proof of his equality with his Father and evidence of his being truly and really God. The Son quickeneth whom he will. Verses 22 and 23. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath communicated all judgment unto the Son, that all men shall honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Burkett notes, The fourth instance of Christ's Godhead, and proof of his equality with the Father, is that it is his work to judge the world. The Father, says Christ, judges no man, that is, no man without me, but all men by me, to this intent, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, i.e., honor him with the same faith, love, fear, worship, that is due and payable to God the Father. Hence learn, one, that Christ as God hath the absolute power of life and death, of absolution and condemnation, which he executes in conjunction with his Father. Two, that having this power of judging the world with the Father, thus show that the same glory is due to him which is due unto the Father. All men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Three, that such as pretend to honor Christ, but deny him to be God equal with the Father, withdraw the highest honor from him, 
and such as withdraw the honor from the Son, deny it to the Father, who will not be honored, but in and through the honoring of the Son. This text speaks dread and terror to the Socians, who pretend to honor Christ, but not with the same honor with which they pretend to honor the Father. In God's account, they honor him not at all, for he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father. True, they pray to Christ and give him divine worship, though they believe him to be a creature. But what is this but idolatry, to worship that which by nature is not God, and to do that to a creature which God requires to be given to himself, having said, My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48.11 2. Divine honor can be due only to a divine person, that is, to him that is God, blessed forever.